The Audible is proud to have Trader Joe's as its presenting sponsor for 2018. Trader Joe's, where it's always game time and the game is value. What's value? At Trader Joe's, value is where quality and price come together. Snacks, great value. Drinks, great value. Fruits and veggies, great value. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by Stuart Mandel. We are taping this episode first thing Monday morning after the Super Bowl matchup has been set up. But we're going to talk a lot of Group of Five today. We're also going to talk Coaching Carousel, one of the stars of Stu's site, The All-American, Chris Vanini, who is up next. I'm relieved. I thought for a second you said we were going to say we're going to talk about the Super Bowl matchup. I'll let others do that. But yes, always happy to have on. Chris, this will be his debut appearance, and also, I believe, the first appearance by another writer from the All-American. Let's get to it. Let's get to our guest today. He's somebody you and I both talked about hiring once upon a time when we were discussing at FoxSports.com the potential of a college football vertical. He was, he was the one we were targeting, and lo and behold, you went out and did it. You actually hired him. So let's bring on your protege. Chris Benini. Wait, Chris, is this the first you're hearing of this? I don't know. Uh, I, I, I'll i say I, I've listened to the podcast a lot, and I've, I've, uh, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller, so I appreciate you guys having me on and Stu for giving me a job. Well, the good news is it all worked out. There is a co- great college, ver- college football vertical out there now. It's called the All-American, and Chris has developed a nice niche for us. He covers the group of five, which we had a feeling would go over very well because fans of those schools don't get very much coverage and then also the coaching carousel and that's where the two of you really overlap quite a bit in your I mean you may be the only two people left who are still reporting on linebacker coaches moving around and such so let's start there um it's been you know we we did have one head coach hire recently obviously with Kevin Sumlin but for the most part we're at the point of the year where staff members are, are moving around what I mean, Bruce, is there anything in particular that stands out from the last couple of weeks? Well, obviously the head coach move with someone is a, is a sizable one because of the, I don't know, the unusual circumstances around the state of Arizona, first at Arizona State, and now Rich Rod stepping down. You know, I still think there's there's some, some sizable coordinators out there that are pieces moving. You know, we would expect Ryan Day, who's the co-coordinator at Ohio State, to... Uh, potentially end up as the Tennessee Titans new offensive coordinator and I think the timing of that obviously Chip Kelly protege Marcus Mariota there's a lot of stuff on the table but just Ohio State's gonna have to replace JT Barrett they're breaking in three new quarterbacks so that's a uh, an interesting time right now so there's there's still some 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 big dominoes that I think could fall Chris, what's on your radar right now for this week as we tape first thing Monday morning? Yeah, it, it's basically, um, you know, Alabama, I know, has, has appears to have finished up their staff after making a bunch of moves. I, I think we'll probably still see some moves at Michigan based on the number of guys they've brought in versus the number of guys who have left. I mean, I don't think those numbers as of right now are, are fitting up. So uh, still some shakeout for some guys to go. The NFL head coaches are, are getting hired, and not this is the time when you'll see a lot of guys 
making that jump up. Could be after the signing day coming up, but uh, with, with less signing going on, I think you're seeing a little bit more movement right now at this time of year as opposed to years past when kind of this time it might go on pause and guys would wait until after signing day to move. Well, how much is the 10th assistant? I mean, we have a, you know, in addition to the usual shuffling, everybody's got to hire another assistant. So has that made this part of the carousel even more eventful than usual? Yeah, and you've had a lot of the the bigger schools still haven't hired their 10th assistant. And it's kind of some of the lower schools are, are the, the group of five and lower are unsure what to do. You're having a lot of the smaller schools promote quality control guys, promote graduate assistants. It's a cheap way. It's someone who already knows the program. But I, there's still potential for a lot of these guys to, to move up to the Power 5 level um, as we're starting to see a little bit. Yeah, what I think is uh, just from talking to a couple of group of five head coaches last week, one of the things that has come up where they maybe haven't filled the spots is well, we're not sure exactly how the, the dominoes are going are gonna to fall. So we want to have the flexibility. Maybe we need to hire a safeties coach instead of a receiver, another receivers coach or, you know, whatnot. So there is still some uh, some uncertainty as as these pieces keep kind of shifting a little bit. Uh, I wanted to ask Chris this, but both you know, you and Stu, I think, to weigh in. One thing I, I've noticed, especially this year, more than any other year I can remember, there seems to be a real lack of viable defensive coordinators, especially as the salaries have gone up. You know, we see Dave Aranda, ten million dollars fully guaranteed for four years. The, the money is is huge at at the top of the food chain with defensive coordinators, yet. It's just harder and harder to find guys who are proven defensive coordinators. You may have a guy who, who has done it for a while and had a good reputation. Then all of a sudden, you know, he's had a couple of really shaky years where the product on the field has really suffered. And I say that to get to this point. I noticed Barrett Salee, who's been on our podcast before and and now works at CBSSports.com. I guess he was on Paul Feinbaum's show last week, and because I I didn't happen to see it, but I saw Feinbaum's tweet where he basically had said that John Chavis, who's been in the SEC for a long time, basically said that you know he's the new Arkansas hire, and it had been in the works for a while until it got announced, and I'm talking weeks, that the game has basically passed him by, and he was pretty outspoken about why he thought that that was uh, making a huge mistake so, by hiring Chavis. And um, what do you guys, A, in specific that move, but why do you think there are so few defensive coordinators out there to fill all these vacancies? Well, in terms of Chavis individually, it's hard to I mean, do disagree. You, do with, you agree with? Yeah, with yeah it's hard to disagree with that based on his aim. I mean, he was so coveted when... Uh, first of all, it was, a, it was considered a great move, obviously, when he got to LSU after a long-time run at Tennessee. He did very well there. Then he gets to A&M. You know, this was Kevin Sumlin's big D.C. hire. And we kept thinking, well, the defense will turn the corner, the defense will turn the corner. And even with guys like Miles Garrett, they never were a great defense. And so, yes, you have to ask, I think, sometimes with guys like that. Frankly, I would say the same about Mike Stoops at Oklahoma. These guys who have been doing this for so long – and haven't necessarily solved uh, the modern spread offense or the modern, um, you know, or the RPOs, I think, in particular, is what... Well, towards, just to give some context to that, so two years ago, when you, when they had Miles Garrett, and I'm finished sixth 
in the in the SEC on defense, and then last year they finished eighth. So, I mean, you're paying a million, one point five million for a guy who's essentially been middle of the pack the last few years. I don't know necessarily. I think the year before that he was eleventh in the SEC. So, I don't know. It's. I think the game has changed. I think we. I think it's much easier to find an offensive coordinator than it is to find a defensive coordinator. And part of that, I think, is because there's so much tempo and guys are moving so fast. And I think it's harder for the guys who basically have have had a track record of this is how they do things. I mean, you look at a guy like Alex Grinch, and he did really well for Mike Leach, relatively speaking, as a defensive coordinator there. He didn't really have a track record. Uh, and he talked about how, you know, when I talked to him this season, how ad- advantageous that was because people didn't know what to expect. And he was, when you talk to coaches in the Pac-12, he was the most unpredictable play caller to go up against. And I think there's something to be said for that. You'd always hear these Tennessee fans lament third and Chavis. And I think you have, you know, two opposite extremes there. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's easier to coach offense today than it is coach defense because of the way the rules are set up, the way the the players play the speed of the game and there are few defensive coordinators who are sticking around before becoming a head coach. I mean, Kirby smart waiting as long as he did was, was kind of rare, but he became a head coach. Jeremy Pruitt's a head coach. Pat Narduzzi's a head coach and you're not, the guys replacing them at some of these levels are not always on that same level. So a guy like Brent Venables will stay around uh, and get massive, massive contract. Dave Aranda will stick around and get two, $2.5 $2.5 million a year from LSU because it's so hard to find one of those guys that when you think you have one of them, you you, you got to pay them a lot. And A&M thought they had that with John Chavis. Uh, didn't work out. And Pierce Arkansas feels the same because he's Chavis is again, getting a pretty big contract from Arkansas as well too. So they still seem to think he has something left in the tank, um, but that'll obviously be, have to be seen. We will get back to the podcast in a second, but Bruce, happy, as always, to have back Lisa as one of our sponsors. I know you, more than anybody, enjoys a great night of sleep on a Lisa mattress. Yes, it's all relative, Sue. For me, a great night of sleep is like five hours, but nothing makes it easier, at least getting to sleep, than lying on a firm, comfortable bed. And this has been one of the best deals we've had, maybe the best deal we've had, in all of our sponsors in the in the life of the Audible. Indeed. If you go to lisa.com slash Audible, you get $100 off of a Lisa mattress, which is a great value. You go to lisa.com slash Audible, use promo code Audible. If you're not aware of Lisa, they are an innovative direct-to-consumer online mattress brand that is also socially conscious. You can try the mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free with free shipping always. You can also try one at over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. So again, go to lisa.com slash audible and use promo code audible for $100 off of a Lisa mattress of your choosing. Chris, since you're the group of five guy, throw, give us a couple of coordinators. They don't necessarily have to be defensive guys who you think either should be should be pursued by Power 5 programs or you think will be by this time next year? You know, I, I think Brian Jean Mary did a pretty good job at South Florida this, this last year, kind of 
under the radar defensively, how, how improved South Florida was. Andy Avalos at Boise State, people like him. I know people liked the guy at, I think it's Orlando Steinauer at Fresno State, especially working for Jeff Tedford. He's a you know offensive guy being the defensive coordinator. So I think sometimes people get a little, I don't want to say skittish, but they were like, well, that the head coach you know is, is geared towards that side of the ball. So how much is the is the D.C. really running the show kind of thing? So I think that's where sometimes people have a hard time kind of sorting it out. Orlando Steinauer was one of the great revelations of the whole coaching season because so Tedford, so Fresno State was 1-11 in 2016. Tedford comes in, and of all the people to hire as D.C., hires a guy who spent his whole coaching career in the CFL, and they improved by about 100 spots in the defensive rankings and end up going to the Mountain West Championship game. I mean, you got to give Tedford a lot of... You say how hard it is to find guys like this. He went and found the guy in Canada. Right, and, and I, I talked to Tedford about him earlier this year, and he said they, they played each other... They went up against each other twice in the one season that Tedford was in the CFL. They never met, but Ted, Tedford remembered uh, working against him and liked what he did with uh i think it was hamilton and so when tedford got the job that was one of the guys he decided to reach out to and and steinauer has spent most of his career in the cfl and admitted it was, there were a couple of times you know in the offseason when he had to remember that you're using different number of guys you have different number of downs but uh yeah fresno state's defense was a uh, an unbelievable uh, improvement last year with steinauer there I and mean, he's a guy i think probably next year or pretty soon could be moving up to power five. Chris, your background itself is kind of unique. So before, uh, so for people who may not have been familiar with your work before you started working with Stu at the all American, you were on coachingsearch.com and you were kind of one man banding it. And the thing that, that I was impressed by really was just your instincts on if there was an interview whether it was if we had a coach on our podcast or, you know, there was a head coach who did some kind of radio interview somewhere, whether it was Sirius or any place else, you seem to be able to go find what was the most relevant or newsworthy or, or interesting item, especially whether you are an aspiring football coach or not, and to go track it down. Is that something you went to school for? Or how did you end up in this, in this kind of direction? Well, I, I was with Coaching Search for five years. Uh, I joined it a year out of college after I graduated at, at Michigan State and um, started part-time. The site did well, got to full-time working under Pete Russell. And then the last two years, I ran the whole deal on my own. And it was basically, you know, as a small niche site, you kind of had to find something different than what everybody else was doing. So whether it was, a, you know, radio interviews are not something a lot of people listen to. So I would you know, keep a running Twitter list of different radio stations and stuff like that and see what coaches were on and try to find something that just was like, you know, a little unique out of the interview as opposed to, you know, an update on a player's status or thoughts on an upcoming game, whether it was like a philosophy or, you know, a, a take on something that was going on in college football, uh, just try to find something different. And, you know, for, for those years, I, I felt I was able to and I appreciated the support you guys gave uh, on this podcast uh, of the site and, and, and other outlets. And I think, uh, I hope I've been able to bring a similar uh, process to the All-American. And I think this first year has gone pretty well. And the, the feedback's been good on that kind of stuff. 
For sure. So, I mean, what you're doing at the All-American is twofold. And most recently, you know, you've been running the coaching track. So we have this coaching search tracker that you basically took what you were doing at coaching search and you're doing it at um, the All-American. And I can tell people it's extremely popular. It's the it's the place to go to get up to the minute coaching carousel news. And it's still going. You know, this didn't stop with the power five head coaching jobs. So that's one thing. But I'm curious. So we, we kind of took a gamble and we said, you know, let's create a job that is devoted to the group of five. Because if you work at a place like, you know, has a, you know, like a big, an ESPN, a Fox, an SI, they tend to shy away from group of five because it's not going to generate a lot of page views. But we don't really worry about page views. We worry about who, subscribers. So we decided, let's do it. Let's go all in on group of five. And I'm just curious now that we went through a season of it. What was your takeaway? What was your experience in kind of, you know, when you would go visit these campuses or you would call to do stories that, you know, for them to find out that there was a writer doing this? Well, uh, schools liked it. Fans liked it. Even if it wasn't about their school, they appreciated it. I did a I did a little thing early in the year on Darius Phillips at Western Michigan, and, and I heard from a Central Michigan fan who, who said, I hate Western Michigan, but it's great to see some national MAC coverage. So, you know, a lot of these Group of Five teams keep track of the other teams in their conference because they're, you know, they're kind of all in it together. And same thing with going to the schools. You know, coaches would would see that I had written about a another Group of Five school and stuff like that. And a lot of you know, people came to me with story ideas because it was something that they felt was was interesting and could be out there. Or they said, "Hey, check this out. There might be something there." And just a, you know, a lot of a lot of openness and, and transparency. People willing me to willing to let me come sit in on meetings, visit practice. It, it wasn't like you know dealing with a lot of the power five schools because there's so many local and national writers covering them. You know they got to kind of wall it off. But at, at the smaller schools, they're more open to things because they can they appreciate the the attention and and you know being you know treated fairly. And there, there's plenty of stories at the group of five level. It's half of half of FBS. And um, I just think there's a lot of stories. I was happy I was able to tell this year, and, and more to come in the off season and, and going forward. Who would be the closest thing if you could predict who's going to be the UCF of 2018? Well, UCF itself should be interesting because they bring back Mackenzie Milton and uh, a number of a number of guys from obviously an undefeated team. They they lose most of the front seven. They lose a couple other offensive stars but the offense under scott frost used so many different receivers and running backs that there was no other than milton there was no single skill position guy to really focus in on so i think ucf will again have have another shot i i've heard usf i heard they really like uh the quarterback that's coming in after quentin flowers leaving uh, that's one to watch navy will be better now with perry running the show at quarterback one of Kenny Amatololo said he's the best dynamic runner that they've had since he's been there, and I think you saw that toward the end of the year. Some of the other ones, Florida Atlantic, obviously Lane Kiffin had a, had a huge year. They, they really changed after week, I think it was week two, when they went up to Wisconsin during the hurricane, and they ended up having to stay there. And that weekend and the days after, Lane Kiffin really kind of shoved away everything they were doing in, in changed the offensive style. They decided to give Devin Singletary, the running back, uh, sophomore running back, most of the carries because he was doing the best. And Lane Kiffin added a lot of shifting and movement to 
what was Kendall Bryles' uh, high-tempo offense. Now they have a new offensive coordinator, Charlie Weiss Jr., coming in, and people seem to be pretty high in him. But there's a lot of talent back at, at Florida Atlantic, and obviously they finished the year with, I think, 10, 8, 9, 10 straight wins or something like that. Uh, so they'll be having a lot of momentum going into next year. And how fun is this? UCF plays FAU, I want to say week three, week three or week four of next season. So kind of the two of the hot group of five stories of this season, of this past season, uh, will meet early in the year. Speaking of UCF, you do our 1 to 130 rankings. And in the final one, after the national championship game, you had them number two. And I saw the comments. They weren't pretty. Uh, explain, and we should, I should also note, it's not like those are the only teams you ever watched. You were at the uh, Ohio State USC Cotton Bowl. I mean, so you have a pretty good perspective. Why did you believe at the end of the day they were the second best team in the country? Well, I mean, for one, they didn't lose a game, but yes, they had a weaker schedule, but they also, for the most part, dominated that schedule. You know, eight of their first 10 games, they won by at least 20 points. So it's not like, they were squeaking by nobody's. They they beat Memphis twice. They beat South Florida. They, and then to beat Auburn, a team that beat the two teams in the championship game, you know, some people gave them first place votes. I, I, I wasn't going to go that far, but I thought two was perfectly fair. Could UCF beat Georgia? I don't know. I think, I think they'd have a shot. I mean, they did just beat Auburn on a neutral field. That counts for something. And I don't want to hear about, teams being motivated or not motivated for games. I try to base this off of what you did. And, you know, I, I, I thought two was perfectly fair. I did not expect, I think it was mostly Georgia fans who were, who were very upset about that. And, uh, you know, most of the time the 130 went over, you know, pretty well. I had some people had some questions about things, went over a discussion in the comments, but that last one, yeah, just a ton of people at the end were, were, were uh, furious that UCF would be number two and, I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was that unreasonable, nor did, or nor the, the rest of, of what I had. Chris, just the last thing for me, and it's it's kind of a it's not an easy transition to make. But you had mentioned that you're a Michigan State guy. You obviously anyone who follows you on online sees you. You know you you have an awareness of news outside of just just football related matters. There's obviously been a, a horrific scandal there that has been playing out, especially in the national news. Maybe not as much as some of us would have thought it would have been, you know, as as played as big maybe nationally involving the the gymnastics program, but also that stretches into a lot of people think the president of the school should step down. As somebody who went to school there and, and follows Michigan State closely, I mean, what's been your takeaway from 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 this horrific scandal as it's playing out? I mean, do you think they need to make a change, or, or you know, in 2018, how should the university respond to this? I think President Luana K. Simon needs to step down because of a number of things that have come out that went on under her watch or under other people's watch. And they didn't take every step that could have been taken to look into things. It was a lot of, you know, okay, here this is going on, and then I'm just going to leave it at that. She, she had heard that there was an unnamed physician who was uh, under investigation or, or suspended, and and they just left it at that. And and a lot of this happened. There were still, you know, victims being victimized while, you know, either he was suspended or right up until he was a week before he was fired today is, is what one victim said. And 
I, I a year ago I moved to Texas, live in Dallas, so I, I haven't gotten as much of I, I hadn't seen it as much as maybe I would have if I was still living up in Detroit. But I think we're finally seeing everything come out now with these victim statements over the last week, and uh, the board of trustees has issued support for the president. But then the next day, one trustee said she she should resign. Uh, I think the pressure is going to continue to mount for her to, to resign. And I know Tom Izzo, the basketball coach, came out and supported her. But a day later, you know, issued another statement making sure he supported the victims. It's all just unbelievable what happened under the watch of so many people. I think the Detroit News reported more than 10 people had been notified of something going on with, with, with NASA, the, the, the doctor. And no one no one took the step to stop it from happening. Everybody either tried to pass it off to somebody else or just ignore it. That can't happen. I think the president needs to go. I think other people need to go. I think there needs to be uh, a deep independent investigation into the, into the school and who knew what and, and who could have done what to stop it because it was decades of this going on, which is absolutely ridiculous, terrifying. And, and it's finally, I think getting the, the national, attention that that it should be probably still not enough though yeah so bruce took this in a very serious turn but i'm glad he did because this is an extremely important story that's going on right now and worthy of discussion on a football podcast so to follow up on that i mean look i am learning a lot of this this week and maybe that's my fault maybe i should have followed this more closely you know from the time he first got accused of but um let me ask you guys this. Are you surprised that – and I'm not talking about like whether this person should or should not be fired necessarily. But in all of these accounts, and like you said, Chris, there was a Detroit news story, 14 people. Mark Hollis, the AD, his name never comes up in any of this. And this was going on in his athletic department. How is that? From what I've read, it appears the doctor worked a lot in the College of, I think, Osteopathic Medicine I haven't seen Hollis's name come up in any of these reports of of people who might have known. So I I, I think that the reason one of the reasons might be because he was through the school, maybe not as much as the athletic department, but still the, the gymnastics coach uh, knew about this um, and appears to have done a job in, in trying to I don't know about cover it up but push it aside. And I, I think there as part of this investigation, I hope happens. I hope Hollis is one of the you know, part of the investigation in terms of see what he knew, see if who in the athletic department knew and, and how far, how far that went. I think sometimes also just Stu on the, uh, the spotlight element of it, you know, with Penn state, it was so close to, here was a guy, you know, at the core of it who was Joe Paterno's defensive coordinator. And so you had, you know, football is different. I think what made this story, I'm going to say go national because it was, but you know, we're in such a different climate now with how national media is national media stories get covered. It's just, everything seems to be so political. It kind of sucks, sucks the life out of any other story that, or the attention that normally would go to that. So I I think there's that element. There was never any, I also don't think unless it, unless you had, you know, Ali Raceman going on, you know, on camera, or like it was on camera that I think you had a recognizable name attached to it that did it. Cause the sheer numbers are staggering to see what went on. But I think at that point, all of a sudden it, it got other people's attention 
maybe it, it went to another level just from a media standpoint because here's a name you could, uh, you know, here's a more of a recognizable name. It's not to say that, you know, the the names of, of an, often anonymous people sh- should matter, certainly. But I just think that that's the way the the media spotlight seems to work this these days. Well, it was never realistic that it would get Jerry Sandusky type coverage because that was a story in which one of the most famous college football coaches of all time was a central figure. So that's just that's just on a whole other media stratosphere. You know, but but I do think you're right, Bruce. I think a lot more people became aware of this past week when all of a sudden some of the most prominent gymnasts from the Olympics, from the past two Olympics. I mean, these were you know, Allie Raceman was a national celebrity. I know it only comes up every once every four years, but just a national celebrity. Same with Simone Biles. Like these were the most prominent gymnasts in the whole program who say they were sexually abused by this guy. And uh, and the details that I think I find most chilling are so with Jerry Sandusky, it's kind of, there's no ambiguity there. Like if he had a young boys and they're in the shower, like there's just this should have been a this should have been um, you know everybody there screwed up when Mike McQuarrie first brought that to Joe Paterno's attention. This guy got away with it for as long as he did because he was able to mask this as a legitimate medical procedure, and it was just horrifying to read how many people just went along with that. You know, assistant gymnastics coaches. Oh well, he's an Olympic doctor, so he knows what he's doing. God, it, it could have been stopped so long ago. Yeah, and. Bruce kind of mentioned it, but I mean, the, the sad truth is that, yeah, it didn't get as much attention in, in, in media coverage because it, because it's not football, because football gets all the attention, football makes all the money. And, and even the gymnastics part didn't get a ton of attention until, yeah, it included the USA gymnasts who we all remember from, from the Olympics. And I think that's part of how this all, you know, happened because people push it off, push it aside, didn't, look at it too closely and and there i mean there's been barely any national tv media coverage of this even still i mean i know i think the new york times posted all of ali raisman's statement but i mean if you turn on cable news it's just not about politics and I, I think that's a disservice to to everything that the victims are trying to well, change moving moving forward well obviously i mean the president may have slept with a porn star so we've got to fo- we got to focus on cable news has got to focus on that right that's a really important national matter i mean see i'm being I sarcastic in case was, anybody's not clear <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean i remember cnn being live at penn state for for weeks and when playing the press conference when paterno got fired it it just included more high profile people and and it's just sad that it's just sad that that's a requirement to get the level of outrage that this deserves and i still think this needs a lot more and hopefully an investigation will continue to keep this in the spotlight and and force changes all right bruce you figure out a way to segue out of this all right i again if you don't follow chris i urge you to uh stew's not exaggerating i mean stew usually does come across as quite the shill for his website but i will say it his uh chris's tracker about the latest assistant and coaching moves both nfl and college is is a must read if you're a diehard fan i will say this there was some story that i was tipped off to at some point before i woke up and i looked at my phone i had the message sitting there for like 30 minutes and the first thought is has somebody already broken this and i went to chris's site and it wasn't 
and it's pretty it's in the grand scheme of things it's pretty low on the fbs uh, level but i mean that's where i go all the time just to see what's what's happened and what hasn't happened yet so uh, you know and the work he's doing is, is terrific as as uh Stu and i predicted it would be a couple of years ago so chris thanks for joining us uh sorry we you know we ended up drifting down a uh, a really somber and serious topic amidst it but it was something i thought your perspective would really uh really be really be uh strong on it was so thanks for joining us on well, the audible thanks today. For- yeah, thanks for having me. And I think I know which one you were talking about this morning. And I saw that you you had that first, and I was upset that you got it first. But uh, you do a great job, and I've appreciated all I appreciate all the support uh, both of you guys have given me in my career. And uh, appreciate having me on. Absolutely, thanks, Chris. All right, always good to talk to Chris. We're going to get to your mailbag questions in a second, but Bruce, we haven't had a chance to address another very serious story uh, in the news this past week in college football, and that is Washington State quarterback Tyler Holinsky was found dead of an apparent suicide. This was last week. Uh, Mike Leach talked about it for the first time on a teleconference over the weekend. I mean, there's there's no other way to put it. This was so shocking. He had started a quarterback in the Holiday Bowl, a game that you attended, only a few weeks earlier. Teammates Teammates described him as one of the more outgoing guys on the whole team i'm curious from your perspective having you know written a book with mike leach you know mike leach better than the rest of us i think we sometimes think of him as just this goofball but obviously he showed his his more serious side on i believe it was saturday that he had the conference call i mean how do you think he handles something like this I, I obviously it's, it's hard for everybody involved especially the family and his his friends you know what? What's kind of unique in this situation for a leech is a head coach usually isn't that connected with players as much as position coaches are. But Leach is the quarterback coach at Washington State. I mean, he has spent so much time there in that in his office, as much as probably any position player is at any with any coach. And uh, he and I traded a bunch of texts, you know, last week and. One of the things he had told me is he goes, this kid was pro- is probably the was probably the most upbeat player he's ever coached, just in terms of his personality. So I think they're in shock. In fact, I know just from talking to guys on the staff that they were just in disbelief of all the kids for it to be this kid, you know. And you know, one of the coaches I know had told me. You know, they were they were basically goofing around with him that morning, you know, after the morning run. And he left there smiling and then never showed up for um, an afternoon lift. And just I think people are just in in still in shock because it this is one of those subjects that is is obviously, as you said, very serious and very important. And it doesn't get the kind of attention and maybe this will this will help bring a little more of it needed to the topic but it on on the surface it doesn't seem to make any sense because here's a this kid like he was going to be the starting quarterback there are people in that program who said he was even more talented than than luke falk they had big expectations for him really good student really you know really together family older brother was a was a 
was, you know, also a really good student, really good football player, younger brother the same, very supportive of his younger brother who's now being recruited out of Southern California as a quarterback. And it just, again, like I keep saying, it just doesn't on the surface make any sense. And I think that's why the topic, you know, when we're talking about suicide prevention, you know, a lot of times people are looking for some kind of rationale for it because we don't really understand it. And I say we, I mean, you know, the general public just doesn't understand it. And, and so I think right now, you know, Mike Leach, his staff, I think they're trying to be as supportive as, as they can be for their for for Tyler's family and his and his teammates. But, you know, this is a where do we go from here moment that goes way beyond just who's going to be the starting quarterback at Washington State. It's it's are we are we as wired into what's going on and how our players and how our you know, the people who who are in our families, how they're doing and what they're struggling with, because at one point, Stu, you know, I think and I, I've said this before, not related to this topic, but I feel like this day and age, we know exactly how people are feeling about a given topic and what pisses people off more than we ever did because of their Facebook and because of their Twitter accounts. And we see stuff that is on the uh, all over the spectrum from the highest of the highs and the craziest of the crazy. But when it's somebody like this who seems to have everything going for them and all of a sudden it gets, you know, this is obviously something, a tragic end. You're like, what the heck was going on that we did, you know, did we miss signs? And Well, I and, think that you, you know, when you were kind of listing all of the things about him and you, and you even said it yourself, that's trying to use very, you know, rational, logical clues and putting those together. And of course it doesn't make sense, but the, the fact is... <laughs> Uh, depression and mental illness can hit anybody you don't from the outside would necessarily even know what's going on behind the scenes i have to give a lot of credit to matt calkins who's a columnist for the seattle times and obviously this happened right in his market he wrote a column five days ago where he just flat out talked all about his own mental uh, uh his own struggles with mental illness, with depression, listing the medications that he's taking, the fact that he's had suicidal thoughts in the past, and all of it is a way of saying, as bad as it may seem when somebody's going through this, there is, a, there is help. There is a way to get help. And uh, a lot of people, when they were tweeting about the news of this uh, that night, were mentioning this, and I'm going to mention it right now, in the event that anybody listening to this may be suffering from depression themselves, the number to call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255, available 24 hours. Just talking to someone can make all the difference in the world. Um, I have family members who've struggled with mental illness. It's like you said, it's something we don't openly address enough. We're open about talking about cancer and any number of other illnesses. This is an illness just like those, but one that we've been conditioned to keep private. And I think... The more we talk about it publicly and openly, hopefully it avoids, helps avoid a tragedy like this one in the future. Well, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the image of, of vulnerability. And it's not something people are often cultured to, to or conditioned to think is, good, is, is acceptable to talk about. 
because it shows either a sign of weakness or or whatnot, or that's how people think of it. Especially um, in football culture. Yeah, and it's it's sad because I think that you know I I think there's a lot of there's a lot of misunderstanding that goes on, and I'll be honest, just I don't know enough about the topic. You know, I hear about. You know, people battling mental mental illness, and and my instinct is when I hear of people dealing with depression, it's because they lost a loved one who passed away, or they lost a job, or there was some uh, there was some trigger for it. You know, and I don't know if there always has to be some trigger for it. And there could be different things that could be that could trigger people. You know, like I mean. Look, you and I were, were pretty open about talking about our situations with our jobs last year. I mean, I imagine you losing your job last spring probably impacted you in a different way than other people might have lost their jobs and how it impacts them. We're all at different places and are different, you know, have different perspectives on things. And you don't know how people are going to react to it until they're reacting to it. There can be a trigger like that, a life event, but there doesn't necessarily have to be. I mean, at the end of the day, it's something that is can it may be something that's genetic. It's biological. It's a it's a you know it's chemistry. It's an imbalance in the brain. So, and that's why long way of saying that you you can't necessarily understand what may have caused Tyler Herlinski to do what he did uh, because you don't know what obviously somebody's going through internally. With that. Let's turn our attention to the mailbag. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We also this week took some questions on Twitter, and you guys responded very well to that. But uh, why don't we first go to Kyle in Buckhannon, West Virginia. Do you think Dana Holgerson is the coach to take West Virginia to the next level? I actually have been pretty happy with him. I don't think West Virginia fans give him enough credit for navigating to a new conference that is not an ideal fit. The only thing I'm afraid of is him bolting to a bigger job. What do you think? Uh, you know, I think there was that possibility. I actually was surprised he didn't get some more consideration at Arizona State. You know, Dana Horson's in his mid-40s. He's a brilliant offensive coach. Uh, this job is much harder to rack up wins in the Big 12 than it was when it was in the Big, Ten, Big East. Because when I was in the Big East, you often had five non-conference games. And the, there was no Oklahoma at the end in the Big 12. I mean, it was just... It, I think West Virginia was one of the three or four best jobs in that conference. Where in this conference, it's probably on the, on the second division at best in terms of resources, recruiting base, and whatnot. Uh, but I... Look, last year... They were seven and six the year before that. They won ten games. The year before that, they won eight. So he's won twenty five games in the last three years, and he's also I think his record is twelve and six in the conference. That's pretty strong in the last couple seasons. So they I expect them to make a run at the Big Twelve title next year. They're one of those not quite to the degree that Clemson had their all their key guys return. But Will Greer, who was hurt at the end of this season, he's coming back. I, I think he will be a Heisman contender. David Sills will continue to develop as a receiver. Their their defense, which lost so many key guys going into last year, David Long should be an All-American linebacker. He'll be back. They've recruited pretty well. I think they've added some some real talent that they haven't had up front in a while. So 
I think this is a team that should be a top 15 team next year. And then if Holgerson does have a big year, it depends what comes open, you know, but I think he knows he's got a pretty good job, but I'm just not sure, you know, what the fit is going to be. Cause quite honestly, I say this and I think Dana Holgerson would probably even admit this. He's not the guy you would ever see coaching at Notre Dame or something. There are certain jobs you couldn't see Dana Holgerson's at. And that would be like one of them. I mean, that's not alone. I mean, there's a lot of guys who I would say would be that way. But I think he could be pretty attractive because he's such a good offensive coach, especially. Well, you know, one thing I got to give Dana Holgerson a lot of credit for, I think you've seen him evolve as a head coach. I mean, remember the weird circumstances under which he became a head coach with the kind of shoehorned in when Bill Stewart was still the head coach, shoehorned in as a coach in waiting, who then became the head coach sooner than expected. And at first, he was just like a little bit of a caricature, I think. The Red Bull swigging guy, the mad scientist, uh, the high-flying offense of Geno Smith that year. But now, I mean, we've seen him adapt that offense to the personnel that he has in a given year. You've seen them actually have a pretty strong running game in a couple of seasons recently. And then the defense. You know, West Virginia has become a much better defensive team than they were early in his tenure. And so asked his question about whether he can take them to the next level i probably didn't think that in his first couple years i do think that now i think he has the ability to win a big 12 championship there i don't think it's going to be easy but he has shown that kind of progress the last couple years and i do think this next year's team could be pretty good go to your twitter question sure this next question is from daniel kent whose Twitter handle is Jimmy8891, but his name is Daniel Kent. Okay. Thoughts on the proposal to grant immediate eligibility to transfers? And then his other part of this question is, who has impressed you the most thus far in recruiting this year? Let's let's go with the, the uh, immediate eligibility transfer topic because that's that has come up a lot with NCAA meetings recently. So that's a more complicated subject than, than people realize. And in fact, I saw a lot of uh, misinformed reporting and tweeting about it last week. As with a lot of things with the NCAA, things move very slowly. They formed a committee, I don't know, last year, maybe the year before, to explore changing the transfer rules given how much criticism they've received. And one of the many scenarios they were discussing was a one-time exception. So in other words, whether you want to do it as a freshman or a junior or as a grad transfer, one time you could become immediately eligible. And there was talk of tying that to some sort of academic benchmark. You would have to have a certain GPA to do it. That is one of many options they were discussing. There is. Do you, like, do you like that? Do you have to have a certain GPA? I will address. Let me address, say real quickly that. So there's not. This isn't imminent. Uh, some people thought it was going to get past this this past week. Instead, they tabled it, but they left open some flexibility where maybe it gets voted on by this summer. Do I like tying it to a GPA? I don't. I don't because I think that there's a lot of room for abuse there. If that be, if that were to come to fruition, if you were an incoming freshman who had any thoughts that, well, maybe I might need to transfer at some point, it would kind of think, oh, I'm just going to take the easiest classes possible and not um, right, necessarily exactly. major in what I want to major in. Or would a... The flip side of that would be would it would the schools try to try to, I mean I'm not saying they would intentionally try to keep their GPA low, but 
maybe steer them toward harder classes or I don't uh, I don't think that's happening. I don't buy that part of it. You can't you wouldn't say a coach saying like we don't want to lose no, that quarterback no, so No, we're cuz we're going to put him in a class with labs where he may miss practice. No, I don't okay, think they're doing okay. that. So it's the other way around that would concern you. But the overall thing is it's very people like to say well the coaches can go at any moment. They can go anywhere with any moment. Why do the kids have to sit a year? And from a uh, moral standpoint, I totally get that. But from a practical standpoint, how would that even work, especially in football? What if 25 kids decided to transfer, you know, the coach left and suddenly 25, maybe even more coach kids transfer immediately? How, how does a program even manage that? And then, of course, there's the element of basically everybody in college football would be a free agent at any given time. I don't think you could regulate, you know, everybody gets concerned about tampering. I don't really care about tamp- whether they're tampering or not, but I do know that, you know, it would just be a free-for-all. Kid, you know, guy has a big game, week two, he's getting recruited all of a sudden by 15 different coaches. So would that be more fair to the players to let something like that in place? Yes. I just think it would be completely uncontrollable and unmanageable. Okay. I think there's – I tend to agree with you on that, so – well, the one thing I would like to see is the lifting of any restrictions on if you do decide to transfer, a coach can't say, well, you can't transfer to these schools. You know, maybe the rival and maybe you could have some restrictions, but not the way it is now where a coach can basically block you from anywhere he wants. Are you okay with within conference or no? Yeah, because you know what? It actually happens quite a bit and the world moves on, you know? There have been there was a kid but oh, this was a while ago now who transferred from Ohio State to from Michigan to Ohio State. There was a oh, grad that, transfer one of, one of the borns. One of the borns. There was a grad transfer a couple years ago transferred from Cal to Stanford and started at defensive end for Stanford. And the world moved on. I, that's fine. Just that's fine. I'm I'd rather I'd rather take away that restriction and and at least give players more flexibility there than say you can transfer at any time, but they can still block you from going to certain places. Okay. Uh, next one for me, Stu. This question is from Harrison DeHay. Can Baylor make a bowl game in the next year? And, and this one I know is going to be close and dear to your heart, best press box food meal setup. <laughs> uh, best press box meal setup. For, oh, hmm. Let me think. I got to think about that for a second. I, I think that uh, SEC schools tend to do it up a little bit more with those press box meals. What, do you remember when Ohio State a while ago had a frosty machine in the press box? I don't. I'm not a frosty guy, so I that would have been lost on me. That was but. that was a big uh, that was a big sports writers really really enjoyed that. Probably a little bit too much. Cause I don't think they have it anymore. I don't know. I feel like the day there was a time early in my career when some of these schools would have some pretty lavish spreads, but I think that's kind of gone by the wayside. But I do know that, like, if you cover an Alabama or an Auburn game, there's some pretty good barbecue back there. The two schools that jumped out to me last year that I I remember sometimes going up. Usually, I'll eat the Fox food for our crew, but I thought TCU and. Uh, Oklahoma State. I, I feel like Oklahoma State has had good food whenever I've been there. TCU as well. I'll say this, just from a TV standpoint, who takes care of you? Iowa. You know, I had heard this from my producer, who's a, who was an old, longtime ESPN guy. 
and he loved going to Iowa. You know, he thought it was a cool town and everything. And I got to say, with the exception of it being frigid cold in a, you know, when it wasn't that, when it wasn't like the dead of winter, the food I had at Iowa was actually, was really good. Now we were fortunate enough to have like go to an Irish bar because we had a late game that night, the next night. But um, uh, I give Iowa the big thumbs up for how they take care of people. I agree with you. It's been a while since I covered a game at Iowa, but I actually do remember it being, uh, it was, uh, yes. You know what? Let's just go ahead and give them the award, assuming they still do it. I haven't been there in a long time. They really wanted to make you feel welcome. I remember some very nice people working behind the uh, counter at that spread. Yeah, and I will extend it to the head coach, Kirk Ferentz. Very much hospitable. If you're going to do one of his games, you know, I definitely had a, you know, he connects with you, and, and I appreciate it. Also, I think just the whole staff is that way. But anyway, okay, as far as Baylor making a bowl game, what do you think? Um, is it too big of a leap from that rule? Yeah, probably, although we've certainly seen that kind of leap before. They have a lot of issues to address. This wasn't an, a, a case where coach comes in, just needs a little bit of time to get everybody to adapt to his system, and then they'll be they'll make a big jump. There's just so many holes on that roster. Okay, I'm with you. I, th- I think they can get to maybe four wins, but I actually thought that was going to be it. You know, it's not a lot of easy spots on the on that schedule. Next question, Brandon Fanning. Which first-year head coach has the highest ceiling next year? Let me throw out three names to you. You tell me which one you like the most. Okay. Joe Moorhead, new Mississippi State coach. He needs Nick Fitzgerald to come off his injury, but he has a lot of talent returning, albeit it's at Mississippi State in a tough division. And there is... Willie Taggart at Florida State, an uncharacteristically dud of a year on Jimbo Fisher's last year. He gets back DeAndre Francois from injury. They did lose some good players early to the NFL draft, but Cam Akers should be one of the best running backs in the country after a pretty impressive freshman year. He would be number two. That would be the second option. And then I was going to say it's going to be an Oregon relate. Well, Let's throw Jimbo Fisher in there. Just that's my answer. Million. I mean, that's okay. my answer. I think the highest ceiling is Mario Cristobal for this year. Maybe not for the whole time he's there. That's not what I said. I just said let's throw Jimbo Fisher in there because he's making seventy-five million dollars a year. And you said okay. So your answer is is, is option D. Mario no, no, no. Cristobal. You, didn't you just say one of the Oregon guys? I was going to, but then I was like, let's throw Jim. I stopped myself and said, let's throw Jim. Okay. Uh, well, actually, yes, that is the answer. I think Jimbo Fisher has the highest ceiling because there is talent for sure at College Station. Uh, it was a bit of a rebuilding year this past year. Wouldn't surprise me at all if he goes in there and wins 10 games his first year. Okay, let's do this. because let's. You no, know, he's going to lose Christian Kirk. That's a great player. They still have some good young receivers. But I'm going to read something to you. This is their schedule. At Northwestern State, they should win that. And then it gets a little tricky. Yeah. <laughs> they they host Clemson. I'm guessing. Yeah, they're not going to win 10 games. <laughs> uh, I take that back because Clemson and Alabama are two. Clemson, they play Clemson, and then they are off, they're off. They play ULM. Then they got to go to Tuscaloosa. Then they have Arkansas, Kentucky. Then they have three games in a row on the road. Now, they're, they have a bye week in the middle of this, but at South Carolina, at the aforementioned Mississippi State, and at Auburn. I changed my answer. 
I'm going to go back to my original answer of Mario Cristobal because I could see them improving quite a bit. I mean, they were 7-5 and five this year, and Justin Herbert was hurt for half the season. They were able to retain Jim Levitt. Pac-12 is very down right now, although certainly the two you know, the teams that would seem to be in the best shape for next year are both in Oregon's division, Stanford and Washington. But uh, that's my answer now. All right. Fair enough. I think we go need with, to uh, – okay, go ahead. I'm going to go with Florida State on this. Yeah, and that's, and that's a perfectly legit answer if you feel like – for instance, I thought about Dan Mullen. I thought about saying Dan Mullen, and then I thought – I think Mackel, uh I don't think McElwain did a very good job recruiting there, and I think that they probably have quite a few holes he's going to have to address in recruiting before they could be that kind of team, whereas I don't think Florida State's main issue this past year was huge recruiting drop-off. So with a quarterback that they can count on, and yes, they lost a lot of guys to the pros, but that happens every year at Florida State. I, I could totally see that. I could totally see a very quick turnaround. Well, that was fun, as always. Thanks to our guest, Chris Vanini. And you can email us at theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We're going to end with a new set of closing credits. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting for? Please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts. Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts, give us a five-star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's, for making this possible. We'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Subscribe to my college football site, The All-American. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible and you'll get 20% off of this annual subscription. And if you aren't following us on Twitter already, you can do so. Bruce is Bruce Feldman, CFB, and Stu is SL Mandel. See you next time. Come on, get over here.